Welcome, adventurers. This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your host, Remix Sakura. And I am your other host, Emmy. And today we are bringing you a very special episode all about the people of Ulda. Part two of three, four, five? Who knows? Who knows? We have no idea, but we are more than glad to talk about Ulda. The more I do these episodes, the more excited I get. Yeah. But we keep writing more content than we can fit in a single episode, so we're just going to keep going with it. Let's do it. See how far we can take it. Last time, you learned a little bit about how much we love Sultana Nanamo Ulnamo. And today, we're going to go into great detail. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) She's one of my favorite characters, probably my favorite. So, yeah, let's go into detail. Probably my favorite, too. Yeah. Emmy, why don't you start off? Okay. Well... We'll start off with what we know, and then I guess we'll go into speculation after that. Uh-huh. So, first thing we know, Nanamo Unamo is the only daughter, only child, of Sasabal, Ulsisibal, um, who was the past Sultan of Uda, and Nanasha Ulnasha. Now, the thing about those names is kind of cool, because there is clearly a tradition in naming conventions with these Lalafels who are part of the Sultanate. Namely, for the males, it's Sasa something, Ul, which denotes that they are part of the Ul dynasty, and then Sisi something, so Sasa Bal, Ul Sisi Bal in this case. And then for the females, it usually goes Nana something, Ul Na something. Yeah. We don't know about too many other past monarchs, but we know that the, the first sultan was called Sasagan Ul Sisigan, so that tradition has lived on. But I think also uh, Sasamo, who was the namesake of the 80 sins of Sasamo, was also a sultana. He was a sultan. He was he was a guy. Was it? Okay. He was a guy. It's the Dunesfolk naming convention. He's, he's definitely a guy. Yeah. Yeah. But then uh, there was also a sultana who ruled over Uda, who was also named Nanasha Unasha. And she ruled in the year 1422. And she was most notably known for being person who founded the Miners Guild in Uda. So that name at least has been reused. Who knows? We don't know a whole lot about like the other sultans that came between, you know, Sasamo came at some point, but between um, really Sasabal and Sasagan, who was the very first, we don't know a whole lot about the other, what is it, 1415? People yeah. where they came in line. Yeah. So, anyway, so Nanamo is the 17th in the line of Ul, but she became Sultana at the age of five when either one or both of her parents passed away. We know for sure her father did pass away at that point. And so she was left to rule at five summers old. Pretty darn young. Yeah. And, you know, as, as I'm sure you can probably imagine five-year-olds can't really make a whole bunch of decisions on their own, especially regarding state affairs. So there was this <laughs> lovely, very interesting guy who came in to act as regent while Nanamo was young until she was around 15. And then once she turned 16, we don't really see him again. 
But he was an Elzen named Marcy Champ, who we like to fondly call the royal babysitter. Because that really, <laughs> at least in all the interactions that I've seen, which really amounts to one in 1.0, he, you know, was just trying to keep Nanamo under control. <laughs> now, do we know for sure that he actually had the authority of a regent and he was more than a royal babysitter? You know, because whoever is regent is, is essentially the ruler, you know, for however many years. You know, I'm not actually sure, but I think a lot of people assume. I've been looking around on forum posts and a lot of people just say that he's probably the regent. I would agree because really the only other people that she really is accompanied by are more like servants, sultan sworn, things like that. Yeah, it's fair to assume if you don't have all the information, hopefully one day we will get it. Yep. Lore book. Cough, cough. Lore book, please. Every episode we're going to talk about until this lore book comes out, how much we want this lore book. But when you do see Marsa Champ, um, which I believe it's the first time, please, 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 you know, if I'm wrong, I'm very sorry. I've only seen that one cutscene in 1.0. But during this cutscene, there might be blood. Nanamo is seen very, very happily meeting with Raubon. And it's very clear that they have known each other for at least, you know, some amount of time. So since at least the time that that happened where she was 13. So they've been friends for a while, considering that she's now in her early 20s. Perhaps we should describe for the benefit of the audience what happens in this cutscene. All right. In this cutscene, Raubon has just won one of really countless victories at the Colosseum. It was actually the, his 1,000th victory that was like the big deal. Well, I'm going to go say it was countless. Okay. <laughs> Same he's, thing. He's a cool guy. Anyway, so he, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's won a match. And in doing so, the winnings of that match have allowed him to become one of the six wealthiest people in Uldal, which of course means he gets to join the syndicate. Yay! So Nanamo is very, very happy about this. She rushes onto the field, jumping over several people who are trying to stop her. And, you know, just flies into Raubon's arms and very, very happy about this. And <laughs> so, you know, they're sort of celebrating that. And she inducts him onto the syndicate. Raubon and Nanamo in the scene, it's very clear they've made some sort of promise to each other because Raubon... One of the very first things he tells her is, I have kept the promise made, your grace. And Animal replies, what so you have, and with time, so too shall I keep mine. I think that was the lines. Yeah. I don't have them pulled up, but I'm very, very convinced that those were the exact words. That seems familiar. I, I know. I may or may not have watched the scene multiple times. Yep, same here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they've they've been friends for quite some time. They've made this promise, and... They are trying to uphold those, whatever those might be. Unfortunately, though, because she was born into this position, she didn't have a whole lot of choice as to what the political front would be and whether or not she even had a question of, is she going to accept these responsibilities? So she's been born into, even though it's a comfortable life, this life where the syndicate has eroded away at the power of the sultanate. So she can sit in on meetings as sultana, but she can't even vote 
so yeah, she, she's been born into this society where she and Ralvan maybe are trying to build this federal law that they want to see. But even though she's there, even though she's someone involved, at least she's present on these meetings, the political process is such that she can't do a whole lot. Which I'm sure is really, really frustrating for her. Yeah. The scene that came to mind to illustrate this point for me was when the Doman refugees land in Eorzea and they ask the Warrior of Light and Alphano and everybody to see if they can get some help in Ulda. They have the idea that maybe since Ulda has accepted refugees before, they'll be willing to do so again. You know, Yugiri goes up and makes an offer, like, we'll, we'll work for it. You know, we'll do whatever we can, but we have 200 people that, and we have nothing and we can't feed them. And, the, you know, there's so much opposition that the plan fails. But Nanabo went and pled the case for them, but she technically doesn't get a vote. You know, she can talk and plead all she wants, but if there, if there were like a three to three tie in the, in the syndicate, let's say, there's, no, there's nothing she, she could do about it. And it really sucks for her to see her in that really futile position. And the thing is, that's one major issue that we get to see that's very plot relevant. But imagine all of the normal day-to-day stuff that goes on in Olda. Imagine how many meetings she's been in where she hasn't gotten a vote, where she's had to just sit down and shut up at the end of the day. That's awful. Yeah, her life is not easy, Mm-mm. but she still does it. She still is there. She still says what she has to say, even if it maybe doesn't matter in the end. And I think for that reason, that's why she wanted to change things as drastically as she did. Could you maybe go into that a little bit? Yeah. It's clear that she knows that the common people don't have a voice. The syndicate is just largely, you know, with the exception of Braubon, out for themselves, out for other rich people. And we were talking a bit before about that scene earlier where... It's clear that the two of them were working together in some way to get Raubon on the syndicate. They knew that they shared this dream of fighting for a better Ulda, fighting for the common people, but Nanamo knew that alone she couldn't do anything. By teaming up with him, he who actually had a chance of getting on the syndicate, they can sort of work together. So in many ways, Raubon acts as her voice or their joint voice on the syndicate. Aww. But... At the end of the day, it's not enough. He's kind of one against everybody else. He's the so only now, royalist. So, so now both of them are frustrated. Yeah. And Nanamo comes to the decision on her own that the only way to help this situation is to abdicate the throne, dissolve the syndicate, and declare Ulda a republic. And there's definitely a double-edged sword to that technique. She will give up whatever small power she does have left, but in exchange, you know, power truly will go to the people. And here's the thing, perhaps even in that case, I have a feeling that if, say, there were elections held in Ulda, people would probably vote for Nanamo because they've known that she's been on their side. They like her. She's familiar. And as an elected official, there's very likely that she could actually do more than she ever did in her entire life thus far to help people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that. I do have a butt to that, but continue. <laughs> when I watched the scene where she's talking about her plan to abdicate, I kind of got this feeling in the back of my head of, 
What if she, on some level, doesn't want to be the Sultana? What if she's so frustrated by this life that she wants to cast off the frustrations and the burdens? You know, she doesn't care about the people any less, but maybe... It's clear that she's also frustrated by her inability to kind of live a free and normal life and leave the palace, which is why you have her alter ego, Lady Lalira. If she weren't Sultana and she didn't have to be overprotected all the time by like Papachon and the Sultansporn, maybe she should just go out freely, you know? That's definitely a perk that would come with having it be a republic. Yeah, maybe she just wants to have a normal life for once, a life that she's never had. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I think at this point, though, she and Ralvan really have, they have political experience. And so try as she might to have a normal life, you know, what would she do after this? Like, okay, she's normal. Now she has to go figure out how she's going to earn money and things like that. The other thing, though, that I had a little bit of a concern about if Uldal were to become a republic. And to some extent, I think the monetarists know that Nanamo probably would still end up getting the votes or somebody affiliated with the royalists, somebody with that stance. But keep in mind, and we will probably talk about this a little bit later um, in another episode, there's a lot of propaganda that's coming through, especially regarding the monetarists, portraying them as these, you know, we're people like you, you can do this too. And then, so the poor people may end up voting for Nanamo. Then you have this merchant class, though. And the monetarists sort of have this platform where they are trying to protect, yes, themselves, but they're going to market it as, we want to protect all the merchants as well, all the businesses. So I can see some people voting for the monetarists. Yeah. If we go back to real life for a second, think about like the Republican platform since the 80s or like the no, policies exactly of Ronald Reagan. No, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. And yeah, you know this the idea other thing? that... Yeah. So if you, if you compare it to the Republicans, there are a lot of people in southern states where overall quality of life just taken across the entire population might not be so high and yet they still go for republicans they still are consistently republican states so if we're taking this pro-business stance then it's entirely possible that some of the lower class citizens or previously lower class citizens in this sense might end up still Supporting the monetarist cause. Yeah. There are two reasons I know of why people of low economic status, well, I guess three, go for these conservative Republican type policies. One is that they keep pursuing the dream that if they work hard enough, they can, they too can become rich. It's the carrot and stick mentality. Mm hmm. Even though Republicans are misrepresenting the ways in which they can improve their economic status.
helping small businesses along and getting more pro-business policies still don't replace things like education and healthcare. I'm not sure what the monetarist policy on taxes is, but of course, that's always a hot button issue with conservatives saying, stop tax us, let us keep more of our money, then we would obviously be more prosperous. Whereas, you know, public services are actually good and cheaper for everybody in the long run. And, you know, you still need public services, water, fire, roads, and everything else. It's this trickle-down sense. Yeah. The last reason that I see politically, and I guess we're getting a little bit political here, but... <laughs> hey, it's Ulda. What can we say? <laughs> yeah, that why lower-class people in southern states vote Republican is because of the idea of trickle-down economics, saying that, yeah, keep supporting the rich people, keep letting them get richer because the wealth will trickle down to you eventually because they'll create jobs, you know, job creation. That's like always, always a thing. Mm -hmm. if, if you help us start businesses, you know, it, it's for the good of everybody. When, and the reality is it may help a little, but the wealth is too concentrated in the hands of a few people, which is obviously the case in Ulda. Like, yeah. it doesn't trickle down enough to really make a, an appreciable difference in the life of an average person. Take a look at the refugees. Hey. <laughs> hey, I made that a song now. You can make, you make a song about the refugees, like Disney style? We can. This is going to be my, mi my mixtape. <laughs> something, 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 well done, refugees. You should, you should make a mixtape from the point of view of Nanamo. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm imagining, like, Nanamo trying to rap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It would be, I think people would buy it for the shock value. <laughs> Maybe she would have like an alias and then like put the mixtape underground, be like. Lil Lilira. <laughs> yeah. DJ Lilira. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Headcanon accepted. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do like some voice acting as Lilira and we can make this happen. Aww. We'll make this a bonus thing. Oh. Actually, like that it. would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tempted. Okay. Anyway, so we we've enormously sidetracked. <laughs> I have no idea where we were. All right. So we talked a little bit about the scene from 1.0 called There Might Be Blood in the Coliseum. That's essentially the first or earliest scene in which we see either Nanamo or Ralbon interact. And they've clearly been friends for a little while at that time. The next thing that comes up chronologically is one of the stories from Tales from the Calamity. And Nanamo's story, when she is 15, almost 16, it's called the Sultana Seven, and it shows her point of view of what happens during the Calamity. So in the story, Ralban has left to go fight at Cartano. And there's a chance that he's not going to come back. It's the Calamity. It's a pretty massive threat. The world is basically ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so Nanamo, and this is the part that I sort of do not like, but Nanamo's health, it said, has been affected by Raban's absence. Well, she's clearly very, very worried and she's not sleeping or eating. That's the thing. She's very preoccupied. I can understand the overthinking thing, but the way that they write it is almost laughable. So I think I'm going to read some of it now, if that's all right. Yeah. We got a dramatic reading coming up. We do. Okay, I found it. So, here is how it goes. <laughs> As the days went by, the weight of responsibility and uncertainty began to tell. Nanamo's nights were sleepless. Not even her favorite dishes would pass her lips, and her round lalafallon cheeks took on a hollow cast. Sure enough, despite the best ministrations of her ladies-in-waiting, her health began to fail. 
she became a ghost of herself and her duties went unattended. Yeah, it always did kind of seem to me that that was a little bit exaggerated. It sort of does because it's like, well, she ignored everything. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't sleep. But the more I look at it, and this is really sad. This is very sad. But the more I look at it, the more I realize, and not so much that the duties went unaccomplished. I'll still do that. But like, she gets so stressed out about this that she isn't eating. And as much as I say that, oh, she should eat, that same thing happens to me. Aww. <laughs> it's so bad. But the idea that it was written as dramatically as it was shows some sort of dependency in my opinion. So I really hope, and it seems like she has, but I hope she's lost that. Where if Raubon were not there, then she couldn't accomplish anything at all yeah well actually one of the reasons why i like the story a lot you know even though on some level i'm like oh her suffering for him is so cute <laughs> i know it's that's not terrible. cute <laughs> it's not cute <laughs> like my favorite thing about the story overall is that by the end nanamo really gets a slap in the face and changes her tune goes to take charge and she becomes like the big sultana in charge at the end of the day. And she learns a lot and she does this on her own. And that really helps her later on to rebuild Uldah after a lot of stuff is destroyed. Yeah. And I mean, let's, let's give her a little bit of credit that she's still like 15, 16 at this point. So it's okay for her to not be perfect. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, characters are interesting if they have flaws and they grow. They do. And she has grown a lot. If not, she has in my opinion, grown the most of any character. I would say, yeah. Her and like Alphano. Alpha, yeah, Alphano has completely made a turnaround now that I think about it. But Nanamo's even younger than he is. No, she's around the same age. Oh yeah, that's true. Maybe just everybody goes through this giant transformation at around 15 or 16. Yeah, well that kind of, yeah, that is true. I mean, teenagehood is, is a big transition in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're right. Okay, so Nanamo, she's in her 20s at this point, and, and Alphano's still a teenager. So we've talked about everything that has happened with Nanamo pre-Realm Reborn in the timeline of 1.0. A lot of stuff has happened in Realm Reborn and even in Heaven's Word so far. So what's kind of the current situation? Well, we get a little bit of a look at that. You know, after this whole, she got assassinated, but she's not dead, and she's back. Well, what we currently know about that, we know from another written piece that was posted online, Tales from the Dragon Sun War. And Nanamo actually got the second story that she stars in, and it's called For Coin and Country. Now, this is very interesting and surprising because it actually shows major plot points that have not been in the game yet. And every other Tales from... X story that has been released so far has been a flashback. This is the only one that has taken place in the present day. I'm actually kind of curious about why they made this choice and also why in the collection called Tales from the Dragon Song War, they chose to go with Nanamo and not another person from Ishgard. My theory is actually this was a little bit of like a trying to fix things up, like, like a mea culpa thing, because in my opinion, the end of the well, the plot line so far was very, very abrupt and very awkward. For one thing, okay, Nanmo's alive, and then, like, they show her, like, waking up, smiling, and that's it. 
I'm like, really? You're not going to show us her reaction to all this shit that's happened? Really? Like, I want to know what her reaction is. <laughs> she wakes up and she's like, oh, how long have I been asleep? They're like, you've been asleep for like several months. Hey, hey Raelbon, like, what happened to your arm? <laughs> Like, really? And then I'm then I going to show us a reaction. So I think that they went against the normal format for these stories because players were giving feedback probably on the forums like, we have all these unanswered questions. This ended way too abruptly. So that they almost like cheated and gave us a preview of something they weren't intending on releasing for a long time. Because it's 3.3 now and we still have not seen this stuff enacted in game. My my theory is sort of related to that, I guess. And it's more so the developers might have run out of time. They wanted to fit in yeah. these details about how Nanamo learns about everything that happened. And she wants to, you know, there, there are some other things that happen that are kind of important within that story too that we might talk about a little bit later. But I I like to think that either they forgot, like you said, and people were like, hey, <laughs> what happened to Ulda? What happened to Nanamo? We want to know. Or they just didn't have the time. And so they were just like, we're going to just add this on and hope maybe some people notice it. And then that'll be it. Maybe we can go into it later. Depict it in game later. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So of the insights we did get and the questions we did get answered, chief among those for me was what is Nanamo's reaction to this whole situation? And it seems like the answer is she's angry, she's very guilty, and she's very self-loathing. She gets into that self-loathing place a whole lot. Yeah. Sultan Tree, she gets there. Here, she gets there again. Yeah, and I, and I can't put my finger on exactly why, but two things seem pretty clear to me. One is that Raubon's kind of depressed. He just seems like not himself. He seems to be very, like, brooding. Like in that meeting they have with Lil Rito, how he doesn't say anything uh -huh. unless it's to explode at him, which is understandable. And two is that there just doesn't seem to be the same level of closeness and trust for the moment between the two of them. And I think that this whole situation has created kind of a rift because one of the big reasons why this kind of went as badly as it did is because Nanamo didn't tell Raban about her plan. She was thinking about him and concerned for him because she was asking all of their allies please help him keep stability in the city after this happens, but she didn't, like, tell him about the plan. She cares about him, but she doesn't trust him with this thing. I don't think it's a lack of trust thing. I think that, here's the problem. If she had told him, he would have told her this is a bad idea. Yeah. And she didn't want to hear the truth. She was being just very stubborn <laughs> and is like, I'm going to do this because... I don't want to hear no for an answer, <laughs> you know, which is which is as bad in, in many ways. Oh, this is terrible. You know, and I like I, I do fault her for that as much as, you know, I love her. I feel like trust and communication are always important. You can't just like not tell like your partner in crime about this important thing because you don't want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth is maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. Maybe not now. You know, so it's very understandable if there's like a rift between them. But that's okay. It's okay to learn from your mistakes. It's okay to become stronger from them. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. But honestly, I would love to see them like just talk the shit out. You know, <laughs> almost like can we see this? Get everything out in the open. But I doubt that they'll do it because it's like 
it's the kind of thing only people like us are into, you know, like the, the emotions, dealing, you know, it's not an exciting issue. It's just dealing with emotions, and, and it's a game where it's just like, ah, oh, but we gotta get back to all the dragons. There are too many dragons to fight. There are enough dragons. We focused enough on the dragons. Let's have some, like, Nanamo and Raban talking it out. <laughs> yeah. That's a behind-the-scenes thing that I would just love to see. That's something- Because it would be so emotionally loaded. Yeah, that's something that we role players have to get accomplished. Yeah. Gotta get That's in touch with my Raban. <laughs> I have to get in touch with my Raban role player and be like, "Hey, let's do this." <laughs> oh, oh, so so over here, I'm the the fanfic author, and I actually started writing something about this. <gasps> oh, that yeah. is exciting. Yeah, it's actually difficult emotionally to deal with these difficult issues, mm-hmm. even vicariously. Like when I try to write it, when I try to put myself in the position of those characters temporarily. I feel their pain and it's almost difficult to write, you know? Yeah. And I know it's important. And I think at the end, like, they will come to a resolution and get stronger from it. And, you know, con- conflict in stories is not a bad thing. It's necessary to, to keep interest and keep growth. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I'm always just, it just seems so obvious, like, there is this rift and I wish they would address it. We'll see how that pans out. Yeah, yeah, maybe they will. Who knows? I'm very interested to know what's happening next. It's like, yeah, they gave us this extra information. And it's just like, oh, but now I want even more. You know, my <laughs> desire to know what happens in Ulda, like, knows no bounds. I will never be satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> I guess all we can do is just speculate and hope at this point. Which, speaking of which, that makes it a good yes. segue to kind of get into what we think about Nanamo. Things that aren't so much outwardly stated, but just things that... Headcanons. Might apply. Yeah, yeah. more headcanon-y things. Yeah. And a lot of this does relate to things that are rooted in canon to support it, so we'll get into that as well. The first thing I'd like to talk about is Nanamo's relationships with not only Raoban, but also with the other Eorzean alliance leaders. And I like to think because she was Sultana at five, even though, yes, she did have a regent, most likely, I mean, let's face it, she's five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She probably met with these other alliance leaders very, very early on. And we can see that they do get together for things other than just your typical Eorzean alliance meetings where Nanamo's there, Raban's there, Merviv's there, Kane Sena's there, and I guess now Emmerich. But with regards to Merviv and Kane, you see the three of them, Nanamo, Kane, Merviv, Getting together for this tea party. Girls only tea party. It is a girls only tea party. And <laughs> they are talking about governmental affairs and things like that. And this is where Nanamo says, I'm planning on ab- abdicating the throne. And please make sure Alban's okay. But I like to think because they've had this before, this tea party before. And this subject is brought up fairly out of the blue. They've had similar events to this before. They've mm. had a lot of get-togethers where they just hang out and chill. Yeah. They didn't They didn't include the part where Moravib got totally sloshed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why Melvib is not allowed to have spirits in official meetings. Yeah. And that but was, at unofficial meetings. But at unofficial meetings, who knows? Hey. <laughs> anyway, so another friend that Nanamo is pretty familiar with, other than those three people. Thancred. 
surprisingly. Mm. She's very willing to show him her sassier side. Yeah. As depicted in Sultan Tree. She's not afraid to talk back to him. So keeping in mind that a lot of people end up acting strictly professional, and this is similar in terms of like physical contact, but the way people speak to her, the way people address her, they're very, they tease each other a lot. Mm -hmm. Your impetuousness, for example, yeah. Thinkard's willing to use that for her. <laughs> so yeah, they, they take a lot of jabs at each other. And so for that reason, they've known each other for quite some time. Well, Thancred is actually in the Sultana 7. Oh, he is? So he's been close to her since the 1.0 time. Yeah, I'm remembering now he tells Nanamo that she should pray uh -huh. to sort of do her part in helping subvert the calamity. Mm. And she does. She does. So she was 15 there, right? So if she's maybe, I don't know, 21 now, six years at the least. Yeah, it's always speculated how much time has passed since the beginning of the game, and we've never gotten a straight answer. <laughs> So there may not be many people who Nanamo can trust, but the few that she does have, I think that they're quite close to her and she does trust them a lot. I think so too, because people do conduct themselves very professionally around her. Yeah. Everybody from people who she sees on a daily basis, like her lady-in-waiting. The contact between the two, from what we see, is pretty minimal. But when we do have people who she's willing to open up with, to get together with, it's very, very personal. She knows yeah. the Warrior of Light. She can trust the Warrior of Light, and she states that. And I don't think she gets to see that many people on a daily basis. Maybe goes to events and things like that. But aside from alliance meetings... And syndicate meetings, and we know how how fondly she enjoys the company of people <laughs> like the monitorists. <laughs> yeah, she she very much values her friends, but she might not have quite as many as one might expect. I think it's really nice for her to have people that see her not as the sultana, quote unquote, but as Nanamo, as just oh, the person. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, people who see her as as who she is. But yes, she is Sultana. Yes, she has these responsibilities, but she's more than that title. She's more than yeah. that position. Absolutely. So in conclusion, Nanamo is great. You yes. know who else is great? Who else is great? Relbon. This is true. <laughs> I really could go on and on about how much I adore Relbon. He well, is this great. is the place to do it <laughs> if you're going to. <laughs> Let's do it. Give us a quick summary then. All right, Raul Bon is somebody who initially fled Alamigo once it was invaded by the Garleans and ended up eventually falling into their control. So he went to Uldah, where, among other things, he became a gladiator. And at some point, of course, he met Nanamo, earned his way onto the syndicate, and from there, the rest is history. He, you know, helped rebuild Uldah after the Calamity. He founded the Immortal Flames and is now the guy in charge of that as well. He runs the Colosseum, or owns the Colosseum at this point, because he bought it out with all the money that he had. So, yeah. He managed to make a very, very good name for himself, and do well, even though we see a lot of 
people who fled all amigo not doing so great. Yeah. Somehow he managed to do it. An interesting thing that I actually only remembered when I was doing research for this episode is that he came to the Thanalan region when, and was actually arrested by the Brass Blades and thrown into the Colosseum, like, basically to die. Oh. Yeah, like, he didn't actually have a choice in that matter. It was basically like, you will do this if you want to live. He became a gladiator, but not by choice. <laughs> yeah. But he succeeded wildly and exceeded everybody's expectations. And I guess the thing that always I like about Robon is that he goes through a lot of horrible shit. Not only does he fight his way out of it, but he re remains a good person. I think that it's one thing to like actually just become successful and to like get money, but there's so many other people who, for whom these experiences would make them bitter or selfish. You know, it's easy for someone to say, my life has been shitty and now I'm going to get mine. And things were taken, you know, people were assholes to me. The world was an asshole to me in the past. Now I'm going to be an asshole to everybody. But he's still a good person after all those things. He's still like as noble as ever. Mm-hmm. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's just like a good guy no matter what happens to him. Now, he's a good guy in Ulda, which is not always a good place, right? Yeah. <laughs> An interesting <laughs> fact about the whole Coliseum win is like, of course, he had to buy the Coliseum from someone else who was previously on the syndicate. And that guy basically, after losing that position, went into poverty. Like Aww. he was totally shamed out of Ulda. You know, you might think someone who's been successful in the past is like, yeah, well... They took a hit, but they can still apply their skills in other places, try to rebuild. But that didn't happen. He was completely like socially ostracized, even though what happened to him was not really under his control. Like he it just kind of happened to him. Like, why is Ulda such a place where you are either at the highest stratospheres or you're at the lowest? Why is it so stratified? Why couldn't this guy just go and rebuild his life? If it's such a place of opportunity, you know, like, why was he so shamed that like his his life was ruined? He got you know? bitter about it from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, and I can I mean, imagine I, why. I, would be I mean, too. now you're just like in this terrible place. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, it seems kind of unfair to the guy, honestly. No, it, it is. And that's just, that's just kind of the place that Ulda is. And here's another interesting thing about Raubon essentially winning and buying his way onto the syndicate. We think this is a good thing because we're like, he's a great guy. He's going to do good things. But this system by which you can buy yourself into power is still very, very messed up. Yeah. You know? Like, we're happy about this, like, conditionally. We're like, well, this is the only way that any of them can do anything. Like, this is the only way that he can help Nanamo. This is the only way that he can be, like, the only good guy on the syndicate. Like, he has to buy his way onto it. You know, morality has no bearing in you're getting elected. It's basically just how, what, how good is your money-making skills? And he definitely got the position by a non-traditional means. He's not a merchant. And in 1.0, and to this day, he gets a lot of flack for that. There's um, a piece of dialogue from back from 1.0 where Teleji is, is like trash talking him. Like he didn't deserve his position. He was like jumped up. It's like, well, he earned it through the way everyone else earned it. But it's almost like he's on, he's on the team. He's on Team Syndicate, but they still don't like him. They still reject him. Teleji, please. Yeah, it's, bitch, please. <laughs> <laughs> but despite the fact that he accomplished everything, something that I noticed is a lot of the Eorzean Alliance leaders, you know, Nanamo has two of them, had these tales from the Calamity stories. Nanamo had two. Rabon didn't get any. Yeah, Mrobop has one, Kana has one, Iwerk has one. Where's Rabon's? Where is it? Where's the flashback? My theory is 
and, and this is completely based on opinion, but Raoban hasn't changed a whole lot since the start. He's he's still a very good guy. And yeah, I mean, he lost his arm. That's a physical thing. And he went he went into this brooding thing, but he really didn't reflect on a whole lot of what he's done until after 3.0 wrapped up. Ever after the Dragon Song War wrapped up, and now 3.4 and 3.5 are going to transition into 4.0. Yeah, so hopefully, maybe he'll end up changing a bit more even after that. But at least up to this point, he hasn't changed a lot. And I think with Nanamo, she's changed so much over time. And she's learning more about how to really grow into this role that she has. That two stories is alright. I can yeah. live with that. I would like to see... A Tales from the Calamity story about Raban. But I like to see a change going through that storyline. This is true. So if they set his story in the present day, we'll get to see some of his thoughts and how he has changed. But if it's a flashback, we might actually get to learn more about his backstory, which is currently very shrouded in mystery. Yes. And Raban. I'm so curious about it, but they <laughs> just keep teasing us. So we found out that he was a leader or the leader of the Alamegan Resistance. Hey, that sounds pretty cool. So can you tell us a little bit about the Alamegan Resistance? Because I don't think we've talked about that yet. Well, we don't know a whole lot, but the invasion of Alamigo happened in the year 1557. Mm -hmm. And so many Alamegans ended up as refugees. Now, geographically, it's a lot closer to Gridania, but there could be some reasons why Alamegans could not or would not want to settle in Gridania. First reason I can think of. Xenophobia. <laughs> yep, xenophobia. Yeah, maybe the elementals don't want them in there or the people of Gridania, having lived so long under this kind of elementals rule, they don't they don't want them there. You know, there's practical reasons to say, okay, the forest might get mad at us, but that has basically lent itself to a culture of not being trustful of outsiders. We yeah, we don't want you to come in. Meanwhile, in Uda, we have these people who are like, cheap labor, yeah, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, and we know that in real life, people that have bad circumstances tend to gravitate towards areas, you know, countries like the United States, big cities, because they see prosperity there, they see jobs there. These refugees very likely looked at Olda the same way. And they say, Olda's doing pretty nice, but there's plenty of jobs there. Well, there certainly are, but doesn't mean that they're, they're going to be treated fairly or paid fairly. Unfortunately, people in real life and in Ulda will take advantage of people in desperate circumstances. And in Ulda, this seems to be the policy of Tolegi Adelegi and of Lolorito, both. In employing these people, yeah, they have a job and they can eat and not die, but they're certainly very unfair and exploitative conditions. Mm -hmm. And not all of them can even get those jobs because we know that there are not only settlements like Little Alamuigo, which is not doing very great, but like Lost Hope, which is essentially just a tent camp in central Thanalan. You know, people are are there, if you do the side quest, they're like their poverty is totally abject. And then you have people living on the streets in the city itself. Mm-hmm. Maybe looking for jobs, who knows? But they're just there. Begging, probably. They are begging. Stealing. Yep. And so clearly, they're getting ignored. They're getting exploited and they're getting ignored. By everyone but Nanamo. Yeah, Nanamo notices, of course. Yeah. And down the line, when Raubon becomes like the poster child for success and he's Alamegan, that maybe they see him as, as like um, a role model and a beacon of hope. Like they can, maybe they can become 
at least marginally as successful as, as he can. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of influence in that group as well. Though I think over time, his success, while a lot of people were being left behind, did end up causing some resentment toward him, toward Rabon. Yes. Especially From for certain somebody people. like Yeah. yeah. <laughs> his good friend Ilbert, or I guess his ex-friend Ilbert at this Quote, point. Quote unquote, good friend. To Ilbert... Ilbert saw Raubon as somebody who grew very, very content with where he was, very complacent and comfortable. And so these people who are all Amigans, you know, they, they are all Amigans. And perhaps to Ilbert, they sort of thought, Ilbert thought that Raubon had abandoned that heritage and abandoned all care, any sort of action that he wanted to take toward helping the Alamigans. Yeah, I mean, he was obviously actively fighting for them in the past, but he got thrown into different circumstances, and he essentially has two jobs. He is the general of the Immortal Flames, and he's a syndicate member. That keeps him pretty busy. There's no shortage of things to do and problems to solve in Nolda. And as far as we know, we don't know that he's actively involved in helping Alamigo, in resistance, in helping refugees. And Raban reflects on that in 3.3 as you go through the quest line that sort of reflects over everything that everybody's done. He's talking about, well, maybe I didn't do enough. And I think that's the beginning of that change, that acknowledgement that, okay, you know, I'm doing all that I can, but maybe I have not done enough. Yeah, maybe he just got too distracted by everything in Ulda and he just, he's been there so long and maybe it just seemed more distant or maybe he gave up on the cause. Maybe he just thought, the cause is hopeless, or there's nothing I can do right now. You know, there's always ways that you can make excuses to yourself. Whether or not they're justified, you know, we'll never really know. But he starts to somewhat see Ilbert's point, or at least understand where he was coming from. Another little characterization thing that I noticed is that in his his figures of speech, at least in in the English localization, it's not the same in Japanese, but he'll use... Phrases involving Rolgar, like, may Rolgar grant you strength. And he's, of course, the patron deity of Alamigo. And I wonder what this actually means. They could just be figures of speech, some things he's been saying forever that he just keeps saying. Does he actually care about Rolgar as a, you know, in a religious way? Does he actually have faith? Is this something that he prays to? Or is it just a figure of speech? Now, it doesn't seem terribly in character for him to be really religious, but... You know, the religion of the Twelve is the dominant religion in Eorzea. And that's just something I I wondered from a characterization perspective. Is he religious? We don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, is that the question? Yeah. Is is he? Yeah. Because things like the worship of Rolgar would make him more connected to Alamiga. Just things you think about when you're a role player. Characterization. <laughs> Lots of characterization stuff. Yeah. That would be something for like someone who RPs him to think about. So obviously, Robon's life changes quite a bit in more ways than one <laughs> during the end of A Realm Reborn in uh, the quest cutscenes called The Parting Glass, which is the whole assassination, everything in Olga goes to shit scene. 40 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, right? And I mean, honestly, like his, his reactions and his acting here are... Some of the stuff that has moved me the most in the entire game. Mm-hmm. I'm about to agree? laugh. <laughs> I'm getting giggly. Oh, oh God. 
This is how she deals with like painful things. This is true. Listeners. She just laughs. She says she laughed when Nanamo got I did. Choked. I laughed when, <laughs> when Nanamo got poisoned. I did tear up when uh in that scene where Ravan figured out or where Ravan realized that Nanamo had been poisoned, but not so much because of Ralban's reaction. <laughs> not so much because of Ralban's reaction, but just because I hate Teleji Adeleji. That little smarmy grin. Just, he was like ugh. comically evil. He was like the comical mustache twirling villain. He was. To a T. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So first thing you got to notice about this scene is, okay, the moment when Danmo gets all choked up and falls to the floor, Raban gets like a spidey sense. <laughs> he gets like a sixth sense and looks back like, I can tell something is wrong. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That he has like a, a sixth sense atta- attachment to her. Okay, and then Teleji comes in, is totally rude to everybody, and is like, "BTW, Nana was dead, and it's all your fault." That's I, imagining Teleji coming in and just saying that. Like that's all he says. He just comes in, "BTW, Nana was <laughs> yeah. dead, and it's all your fault." <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, I have to. I've said many times that this whole part of the story turned me from being ambivalent about the story to being 100% into it. And it was it was the moment when I actually saw Ravan's expression, when he realizes that Nanamo's dead. It breaks I was you. like, I just felt like like a dagger was going into my chest. And I'm like, this is like this, the face of like a CGI guy. Aww. And, there's, and I'm empathizing it with it so much. Like, holy <laughs> crap, what is happening to me? What are these feelings? Ugh. <laughs> uh. And then, and then he goes into like crazy berserker mode, and he fucking wrecks Teleji for good. And I'm like, yeah, rip Teleji, <laughs> rip, rip, meaning uh, rest in pieces. Literally. Yeah, two pieces precisely. <laughs> and uh, later on, when I also watched Edmont in Heaven's Word grieve for his son Harshavant, I-, I realized that seeing people die even beloved characters, is not as painful as watching people grieve for them after the fact. Like, seeing Edmont cry was way worse than seeing Harchifon stabbed. Like, seeing Braubon lose his shit was worse than seeing Anamo choke, emotionally. Because mm-hmm. yeah, it's no, like, you, you die, your pain is over. The people that are left and you're, like, surviving you, like, their pain is just beginning. And just for the record, Nanamo is not dead. Yeah, Spoiler yeah, alert, BGW. She's, BGW. She's not dead. But people thought she was. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, we certainly thought she was. I didn't. I, I watched it. So what happened was I was away for several weeks during the time that this patch came out, and I still was behind on the story. I had started playing, like, I don't know. It had been a while since I would started playing, but I was still behind. So I had one of my friends play that, and so I missed it. But I got to read what happened, and it wasn't until later that I came back, and I saw the scene, and I saw what happened. And it was still moving. Like, I knew she wasn't dead, and so maybe that was part of why I laughed, because she isn't dead, of course. (laughs) But it was still, it's still a kind of tough scene to sit through. Yeah. Especially watching Ramon. You know, hats off to the directors, the cutscene directors, and hats off to at least the Japanese voice actors. Mm-hmm. Because I don't the watch it The English ones were good, too. Yeah. The English ones are pretty good, too. I mean, I'm still not a fan of Anonymous voice now, but 
you know, Aaron Fitzgerald does a decent job. So mm. she's she's better than the last one. That's for certain. Take it from Emmy. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but on the converse side of all this grief and pain, when Ravon finds out that Nana was alive, it's, again, so, so moving. He actually, like, looks really shocked and he actually, like, collapses to the floor. You're like, wow, again, Aww. you're totally emotionally touched, but with happiness now. I mean, they're so close. You have to feel for them. Ugh. <laughs> oh, and I mean, when you first rescue him and you're wondering, like, are you are you alive? Have you have you survived? He says, like, I'm only living so I can avenge the Sultana. Oh. It was still her that was keeping him motivated while he was in jail, while he was being captured. It was that was what keep was keeping him alive. That's pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah, right. So coming up next episode, by the way, because we're about <laughs> to wrap up here, but coming up next episode, we're going to be talking about Nanamo and Raban, why we like to ship them so much, but we're going to talk a bit about like the cons about that too. But if you want to know more about that, you can tune in next time. Yes, we debate the eternal question, will they or won't they? <laughs> <laughs> Which many in the fandom are thinking about. So because we are, I think we've gone over time at this point. Yeah, this is how much we have to talk about. And we this is only about two characters. Else. Yeah, we haven't said everything we've needed to say about these two characters. And there's lots of other characters in Olda that we need to talk about. Yeah, we, we've got a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we've gone over time, we'll just go straight into the story. Yes, the story of the last two weeks. Yeah, every, every uh, episode we give an in-character or out-of-character story something that happened in the game because we like playing Final Fantasy XIV. And yeah, above all, that's, sure do. that's who we are. So would you like to start this time or should I? I will start out. All right. So I want to talk about my free company on Gilgamesh, and that is Esper's United and how great we are. I'm going to brag a little bit. My FC is great. <laughs> <laughs> Not only are like we a very, very friendly group, everyone's always willing to help each other. We're not very hardcore. We have like one or two people who seriously raid. In that case, you could say that we're soft or midcore, but we still love pushing ourselves. We are always doing primals together, more casual stuff where we just get together. We actually have a day a week where anybody can request help with clearing something new called progression night. So it's clearly like we're all in this together and we, you know, we've had very, very little drama. And I've been with them since shortly after the last FanFest because I actually met some of the members in person at FanFest. And because there were so many problems going on with my FC at the time, a bunch of us that all met up, we just decided to join them. And I think it's a really great story. And it makes me wonder who are the people I'm going to meet at the next FanFest that are going to become my good friends. Is it you, listener? <laughs> I don't know, is it? <laughs> It'd be cool to meet them. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll be talking about that more when the time comes, where how you can get in touch with us and how you can meet up with us. But I think one of the coolest things that makes this such a unified group and team is that the officers are always running events for members to participate in. And these are usually quite casual. Yeah, we have progression nights and we want to run things together, but we've also had events like the scavenger hunt. Basically, we would split up into teams of two or three and 
Every team would be given a series of questions that could only be answered by teleporting to different places in the game and looking around, talking to NPCs, looking at different shops maybe, and finding out these obscure facts. It was basically a race against time and also a trivia contest. Whoever could get the most answers right in the shortest amount of time would win. And it was just, you know, it's a mad mess of, of teleporting all around the world because most of the things could only be answered on location and the facts were, were terribly obscure. Like, what is the hair color of this random NPC that you have no idea about? Oh my gosh. And then you've got to remember, where is the NPC anyway? Um, were we given a hint? Okay, where are they on the map? And and then you would say, like, their hair, their hair color is black. You'd have to be the first one to answer that. Or something like, how much morale does this random piece of PvP gear give you? And we're like, okay, we've got to go to the Wolves' Den, and we've got to go to the shop of the Wolves' Den, and we've got, you know, and it's like plus 20 morale, some, something like that. Something that, that no matter how hardcore you were, big of a lore nut you were, it would be very unlikely that you would be able to answer. The only reason lore might help you is because you would be able to know where to look. It was not only the difficulty of answering the questions, but of knowing where to look. That sounds like a fun event. <laughs> we've also had trivia nights. And this was trivia that was not related to the game at all. We would do like uh, history trivia, tr sports trivia, but we would all do this in game and we would get into teams in game by forming parties. And we weren't allowed to use the internet, you know, if we went by the rules. And we would basically use party chat to talk amongst ourselves, try to get the answer. We'd only have maybe uh, one or two minutes to give the answer. Then we would send a tell to the FC leader, who was the moderator, and whoever could answer first. I mean, that, stuff like that. It sounds lame when you're describing it, but it's so much fun. And like you can be all on voice chat while you're doing this. It's basically just like as if you and your friends were all hanging out in your basement, except you're in game. Some of the most fun experiences that I've had in the whole game have been these events. I think one of the greatest things we ever did was karaoke night, where we all got on dis Discord and oh, did karaoke gosh. over Discord. <laughs> That was pretty epic, and it was recorded, so you can even go to like our forums and like listen to everybody way after the fact. It's so oh cool. My and gosh. actually, coming up later in August, it's going to be the third anniversary of the founding of Espers United because it was formed during the Aroma Born beta. So we're doing things like a three-legged race, which is basically a time trial. You and one other player will go into random instances. And see how fast you can beat, let's say, Titan EX or Shiva EX or a certain dungeon. We're all creating like graphics and cards. We've also had like poster contests where people will just create cool graphics around a certain theme. We've had screenshot contests where you would use a series of contrasts to tell a story about your character. And that was actually one of the things that almost got me to push into RP because I had to make a, a story about my main character, Natsuki. And then I started to think about his personality and his life. And just, we've done so much stuff. Like, there's more I could talk about. But the just the amount of effort that goes into the, making these events on the part of our officers is crazy. But it totally pays off because we're such a unified group. And we really do feel like we're friends. But friends need to, need to do things together. So just hats off to Momo, Delta, and Feely, the officers of Esprit United. You're the best. And I'm definitely going to be with all of you for years to come. And we're going to hang out at FanFest. Yeah. 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 There's so many stories of FC drama around. I thought I would say something like, my FC is great. That's always good to hear, though. Mm. FC drama kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, speaking of FCs, though, uh, my FC just got a 
second permanent member, so that makes three members in all. We're huge, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, this this member is a very good friend of mine who actually gave me the initial idea for starting up an FC agency free company on Gilgamesh. And so he wanted to, you know, join up the cause and still kind of be take like a hands-off approach, but help people out as well. And so he came to me the other day saying, hey, I'm about to buy a medium house. And I said, oh, that's really great. That's awesome. And he said, yeah, would you like to use it as an FC house? Which is a cool idea. Yes, free house. It's it's a free house, and the the motivation for using it would be we'd have the ability to put in more crafting stations because currently we have a small house, um, and we would be able to get more airships. So we would be taking the two houses and essentially listing them under the same FC tag. Now, the issue with this is we're on Gilgamesh, and I know for a fact that Remix is not going to like this, because in her very award, there has been an FC that has bought up, and they bought it up at the very beginning, like when housing came up, but they bought up like half of a ward. Oh, in ward 12? In ward 1. Oh, of, of oh, Lavender, Lavender Bears. Yeah, that's where the Esper's house is. My personal house is in Miss Ward 12. Yeah, but there there have been instances of FCs buying up houses multiple houses and some people think that that's unfair and that's where i'm kind of stuck right now because on the one hand yes we can have two houses we can help people who are looking for fcs to join we'll have more rooms we'll have more airships and then that means more resources for members to use that's great but on the other hand there are a lot of people looking for housing on gilgamesh it's very very crowded and every time housing comes up the prices, um, well, they'll get snatched up immediately. And then some of them have ended up being resold to people for a profit. So it's very tough to find housing on Gilgamesh. So I'm kind of stuck in this debate of, should I get this house to help other people? Or should I just be like, no, maybe we should wait. Or no, maybe we should just take all of our stuff and move it over to the medium. So that's my first story and questioning. But I do have another story. Well, for the record, I'm not mad because I know not you're not one of those house flippers. This is true. <laughs> I'm not a house flipper. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've got access to a lot of houses, but I actually use them and I decorate with them. And in this case, you know, I'm actually going to be putting it to good use and letting people in and use the crafting things and stable chocobos and all but that. But is the medium house in Ward 1? I'm not sure. We're still looking for a seller. It's pretty much whenever we find a seller, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? We can be neighbors? We might be neighbors. <laughs> it would be neat if we were. We just need somebody to give up the house. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's that story. Second story is an in-character one, though. Ooh. Um, Scoot Patoot, who is my main on Gilgamesh, recently got adopted. Oh, again? He... Again, yes. (laughs) And here's the thing. So he got adopted. Um, He is now the adoptive little brother of three triplets, well, triplets, um, who are on the Gilgamesh server. In the roleplay scene, however, he's been adopted so many times. In his backstory, for example, he was left as a kid in this village of Rokadins. 
And so he has these adoptive parents from there. However, upon arriving in Eorzea, he is adopted as a son of of a certain dragoon, not like an NPC dragoon, but just a dragoon friend of mine. So he now has another adoptive father. This said, he also believes he's been adopted by Ralvan because he gives good hugs. That's his entire reason why he's he's self-adopted Ralvan as his dad. It's, this has not actually been confirmed. <laughs> None of this has been confirmed, by the way. And then, because... Of reasons. I I completely forget what the reasons were. But it was something during the Hildebrand quest, I think. Because of something that happened during the Hildebrand quest with the latest patch, he now believes that Hildebrand has adopted him. So Is he Gigi's brother? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I went through the Manderville quest completely dressed up as a black mage. So he scoot went around doing these Manderville quests looking like Vivi from Final Fantasy IX. Aww. His his outfit glamour is Vivi Scoot. So my question is now for this, and I'm I'm just imagining now, what would happen if all of these adoptive father, you know, parental figures and siblings Oh, and I forgot he got adopted by um another adventurer. Um so he's now the little brother of a friend that I ship Nanima with in an AU. So he's got four siblings and three dads, an adoptive grandfather, and if they all were to come together. In a family reunion. In a family reunion. And then they all found out that Scoot had not really noticed or realized what the ramifications of being adopted by all these people are. What would happen? Mm. <laughs> it would just be madness about people trying to claim Scoot. And it would be hilarious. It would be hilarious because he doesn't know any better. So he's just sitting there just being like, let's all be friends. And then everybody's like, but I'm Scoot's father. But I'm Scoot's parents. And it's it's really funny to think about. Well, hey, there's more than enough Scoot hugs to go around. This is true. <laughs> We were talking about it earlier, um, how Nanamo, the difference between Nanamo and Scoot is Nanamo doesn't hug a whole lot of people. Scoot, on the other hand, is like, hug everybody. <laughs> hug all the things. And, and tank all the things. And tank all but the things. But not the same things. Yeah. <laughs> if, okay, if you're nice, hug them. If you aren't nice, tank them. Aww. There we go. Aww. <laughs> So I hope you understood that story. Yes. Because that kind of got a bit lengthy. But anyways, this concludes today's episode of MuseCast 14. Be sure to subscribe and share and follow us on all the social media platforms that we have. And we do have a lot of them. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play now. Uh-huh. Um, so you can listen to us there. And you can also find us on our website, which is hosted on Tumblr. The URL for that is MuseCast14, spelled MuseCastXIV.com. We are on Facebook as well. Look up MuseCast14. Same thing, MuseCastXIV. We are on Twitter, our username there. Um, you can find us at MuseCastXIV. Nice and easy to remember. And, yep. <laughs> and um, you can also find us on Patreon now where, among other things, you can 
get access to bonus content, just stuff that we wanted to talk about but couldn't because of time constraints. You can also find bloopers and you can get access to our episodes 24 hours before they air. Yep. All for the price of a few bucks a month. It's true. You can support us. All the money goes back into the podcast and just, you know, keeping us keeping us going and making things better. Indeed. So for episode six, we're actually going to have something very special before we resume talking about Olda. Oh, that's right. We have an interview. Well, we had an interview with Luna Vox, who is the host of Phoenix Down, or one of the hosts of Phoenix Down Radio, and also is a pretty, pretty cool person in the role-playing scene on Hyperion. Started up Role FC, and also the leader of Luna's, what is it? Luna's Lounge Link Shell. Luna's Lounge Link Shell. And the Roll Hyperion Free Company, which was apparently the first RPFC on Hyperion and was instrumental in in bringing that community together. So you can uh, listen as we sit down and talk with her about all those things, about role-playing, FCs, Link Shells, and... And characters. Yep. Lots of fun. We have We had lots of fun. It was great. Yes. We've got lots of cool stuff coming up for you, adventurers. Until next time, see ya. See ya next time. Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be interviewing Luna Vox. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystal.